But let me begin us with a word of prayer as we get started tonight. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this terrific book. Lord, we pray that as we engage these topics tonight, that you would stretch our minds, but that you would also stretch our hearts and that we would be moved more and more into obedience to following your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So I am glad to see y'all. And as we walk toward the end of this book, I want to just continue to commend to you the idea of going back and chewing on chapters, uh, because there is just so much in here uh, that it is uh, impossible, even in an hour-long class, to really do justice to it. So let's begin by saying our verse together as usual. May grace and peace be multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him, called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. So I would encourage you to uh, mute yourself, and uh, that will help us to be able to focus in. And as I was saying earlier, uh, with some of y'all did not hear, uh, Jane got called at the last minute for a tennis match. Uh, so we are uh, without a co-host as it were. So I will be trying to admit people uh, as they appear. Um, I know we're gonna have a smaller crowd because I've heard from a lot of people that they're gonna follow on YouTube instead. So. Uh, just to uh, reiterate for the folks that are new, which I'm still hearing from new people every week that are finding the class. One of the latest was a minister in Australia, believe it or not, uh, who is going to use some of the material with his congregation. So you just never know. But uh, for those of you who are new, there are three ways to approach this. Uh, one is to be what we call on the beach, which means that you are taking it easy. You are uh, enjoying as much as you would like to participate, but you might be making dinner or reading a book or doing something else in the background where you're not fully engaged. And that is totally, totally fine. Or you can snorkel, which means that you are uh, going deep on the things that you want to take a look at in particular, but not so much on the other things where you retreat back to the beach. Or you can be a scuba diver, uh, which means that you go down the rabbit hole on all the things that I put out there and listen to the music and think about the words and read the extra books and all of that. And I wanna give Miss M. Weppel extra credit because she actually read Athanasius on the Incarnation, uh, which is uh, a beautiful thing. Uh, that I would encourage all of you to do. Um, it will be a blessing to you if you do it. So I also want to encourage people that are new, if you are not on the email list, to please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and uh, send us a note and we will add you to the email list. 
Um, the other thing that I wanted to just mention tonight is that we have just put up a new podcast uh, that is part of an earlier class that we did on the Inklings, but it is the deep dive that we did into the Silver Chair, which is one of the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, that is a book that is strangely relevant in this particular cultural moment. So that is now up on Apple Podcast, and I will send you a link to that. Again, it's one of those things where if you have the time uh, to go and give it a rating, if you listen to it and like it, um, that will help it to uh, be discoverable. The way these podcasts work is the more ratings and reviews they have, um, the more they bump up on the uh, search engines where people can find them. And one of the things that we are very encouraged by is the number of people that we hear from who um, are finding these classes and God is using them to help them really grow in their Christian faith, which is a great joy for all of us. So just a couple of things, even as we're toward the end of the book, do try reading aloud. These last chapters are a little bit abstract, some of them, and reading aloud can be a huge help in digesting the material. Uh, one chapter at a time, certainly these last chapters definitely don't read more than one uh, in a day because there's so much in them that you will, you will miss out. And then the C.S. Lewis Doodle is just a terrific resource that I commend to you. So uh, tonight's music, I'm going to see if I can get this to play. This is like trying to stand on your head and uh, chew gum and rub your stomach and dance at the same time with all of these different things going on. But we'll see if we can get it to work. See if anybody recognizes this. If you think you know what it is, feel free to send me a chat. <laughs> Sarah Stender has got the general work that it's from. And we're going to listen just a little bit more so we can get to the main part. And Carrie and Sarah's got the actual name of the section too. Good job. And Carrie's got it. Y'all are very sharp, even early in the evening. Okay, so that was the, the trumpet shall sound. And one of the glorious things about that is that we are um, in that particular piece hearing from the word of God. It's part of Handel's Messiah. And it is from that passage in Corinthians that is 
about what our ultimate destiny is going to be. And as you listen to that music, uh, it gives you uh, a little foretaste of the joy of that moment with the trumpet shall sound. I would encourage you to listen to that whole link when I send it out. So just a review of context for tonight. We are still in England in wartime. Lewis is still coming to the BBC in a war ravaged London. Um, remember that this is still in the time where the war is not going well. Um, D-Day has not happened yet. The allies are having trouble in their campaign in Italy. And one of the really sad things that's going on in the spring of 1944 is that there's a campaign by German U-boats to sink a lot of British shipping. And a lot of that is happening. And very often when these ships go down, they go down with all hands. So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people dying at sea. So uh, Lewis is preaching and teaching into this. We've talked about these first three books that Lewis thought he was gonna be done, uh, but the BBC would not let him alone and uh, came in person to Oxford to strong arm him uh, to try to convince him that he needed to do this. And even though he was phenomenally busy, uh, he went ahead and agreed to uh, do this next series. And Eric Fenn is uh, the guy that was trying to do a lot of the persuasion. And he was apparently pretty persuasive and managed to um, convince Lewis to do this. And so Lewis started these talks in February of 1944, and they continued on into the spring of that year. And they, like all the earlier ones, proved to be very popular. Um, very often they were played on the radio in pubs. And the instant that Lewis would start to talk, um, the conversation would completely cease. So we've talked about some of the implications of different uh, parts of this uh, book. And the first two chapters, uh, I just want to run through these quickly. The first implication is to prayerfully lean into understanding your faith and the theology behind it, not as good advice, but as life-changing and transformational. And a big book plug here for N.T. Wright's Simply Good News, uh, really a terrific book that unpacks exactly this idea Lewis was talking about. Uh, a second thing is to understand the difference between bios and Zoe and ensure you're nourishing Zoe daily, just as you do bios. And we talked about how in the New Testament, the word life, every time we see that word in English, it could be one or the other word in Greek, bios or Zoe. Bios is just biological earthly life that a human has, that a plant has, um, that a cow has. Zoe is the life that is only in Christ and in the Trinity. And it's important that we feed both of those. And then Lewis talks about this theme that we're gonna talk about again tonight. The whole purpose for which we exist is to be taken into the life of God. That we need to cultivate habits to reinforce that reality. And then fourthly, that we are to seek God together in deep fellowship with other believers. That we are not to be just solitary lone ranger Christians that we need to be 
about this whole idea of following after Christ in the company of other believers, because we have not been designed to do this on our own. God has given us the body of Christ on purpose so that we are able to uh, experience this fellowship that makes uh, this journey one where we have support along the way. So another thing that is important from chapters three and four is that whole idea of God's time and our time. Lewis says, if this bothers you and makes your head feel like it's gonna explode, just skip it. Uh, but he says, it's, for some people it's helpful. I find this to be very helpful. And just the idea that when you think about God as being outside of time, it makes an, a lot of other things much more uh, understandable. And the second thing is to consciously embrace and maintain an eternal kingdom perspective, to realize that we walk by faith and not by sight, and that Can you we hear need that okay? constantly be nourishing. Okay, I'm down. down in the corner. Well, and then the third thing. Because he wants you to be able to read this if you want to. And let me just remind y'all to please mute yourselves so that we can um, not, not get feedback as we are going through here. So the third thing is to draw near to the life-giving fountain that is in the Trinity. It is a remarkable and wonderful thing that is uh, what we just celebrated this past Sunday as we were celebrating Trinity Sunday. And it's this idea that at the center of the universe is this life-giving fountain of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that that is where life is, and that as we draw near to the Trinity, we find that we begin to absorb that Zoe kind of life that is so very important. And then this great quotation from the Anglican Puritan theologian John Flavel all that delights you in earthly things can never satisfy you, for all of your desires are in God. The comforts you have here are only drops in flaming, not satisfying the appetites of your soul, but the lamb will lead you to fountains of living water. The implications from five, six, and seven cultivate a sense of wonder about the incarnation, a great way to do this is to check out Athanasius's book. Uh, and just, even if you read little parts of it, we take the incarnation so for granted, but beginning to get your head around the idea of what God did in Jesus's incarnation uh, will cause you to fall to your knees and worship. The second thing is to consider and rejoice in Christ as the first fruits of this new Zoe kind of life, this life that is found in God alone. And there's some terrific scripture verses about first fruits that sometimes get preached on at Easter um, because that's when they're usually assigned, but sometimes they get lost um, in the joy of the resurrection. So I'd encourage you to do, if you're scuba diving, um, go and do a word search on first fruits and the New Testament and read and meditate on those verses. Thirdly, practice a biblical appreciation for the diversity of God's creation and the body of Christ. This whole idea that we are 
a part of a large group of believers and that when we are part of that group of believers, it makes a huge difference to realize that not everyone is the same, that not everyone has exactly the same gifts. And thank heavens for that. Uh, what would it be like if all of us were feet and there were no arms and no legs and no eyes and no ears? Um, and actually Lewis plays with that a little bit in the Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you may remember the characters called the duffel pods and they, they are like um, a body that is just one part. So the fourth thing is to consider daily what you are choosing. And this whole idea of what you are choosing to listen to and put on who you are choosing to be uh, is so important because we all too often fail to think about what we're putting off and what we're putting on. But the scriptures call us to be very proactive in this. Um, all of these verbs are big action verbs, not ones that we are acted upon, but ones where we take that initiative to make these changes in our lives. And it's that beautiful thing that we've talked about um, that we see in that verse in Philippians that God work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, which sounds like it's all up to us, but then the second part where it says, for it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And then fifthly, hunger for transformation. All of us need to be transformed. And every day, even though we don't know it, we are being conformed to the world. The world is like a jello mold that we are poured into and it wants to shape us and unless we are consciously resisting that, we are going to miss out. So I would encourage you to think about what ways you may need to be transformed and to be seeking after and praying for that. So that brings us to um, tonight's chapter, chapter eight and chapter nine. And there's a lot of great stuff in here. So I love this chapter title, Is Christianity Hard or Easy? And so in this last chapter, um, we talked about the Christian idea of putting on Christ or dressing up as a son of God in order that you may finally become a real son. And what Lewis says is this is not just one among many jobs a Christian has to do, and it's not a special sort of exercise for the top class. It is the whole of Christianity and Christianity offers nothing else at all. And he says that it differs from ordinary ideas of morality and being good. The ordinary idea, which we all have before we become Christians is this. We take as a starting point, our ordinary self with its various desires and interests. We then admit that something else, call it morality or decent behavior or the good of society has claims on this self claims which interfere with its own desires. What we mean by being good is giving in to those claims. Some of the things the ordinary self wanted to do turn out to be what we call wrong. Well, we must give them up. Other things which the self did not want to do turn out to be what we call right. Well, we shall have to do them. 
but we are hoping all the time that when all the demands have been met, the poor natural self will still have some chance and some time to get on with its own life and do what it likes. In fact, we are very like an honest man paying his taxes. He pays them all right, but he does hope that there will be enough left over for him to live on. And what Lewis says is that this is completely the wrong starting point, that that is not where we want to be. And that what we need to be thinking about instead is that uh, this starting point sends us in the wrong direction. He says, because we're taking our natural self as the starting point, one or other of two results is likely to follow. Either we give up trying to be good or else we become very unhappy indeed. For make no mistake, if you're really going to try to meet all the demands made on the natural self, it will not have enough left over to live on. The more you obey your conscience, the more your conscience will demand of you. And your natural self, which is thus being starved and hampered and worried at every turn, will get angrier and angrier. In the end, you will either give up trying to be good or else become one of those people who, as they say, live for others, but always in a discontented, grumbling way, always wondering why the others do not notice it more and always making a martyr of yourself. And once you have become that, you will be a far greater pest to anyone who has to live with you That's you again, if you would remain frankly selfish. And that reminds me of that little poem that I've shared with y'all before that's a little bit of doggerel that Lewis wrote. It says, erected by her sorrowing brothers in memory of Martha Clay, here lies one who lived for others. Now she has peace and so have they. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, but sometimes we are so busy going about being busy bodies, making martyrs of ourselves and feeling very unnoticed and unappreciated that we frankly become obnoxious. And that does not do anything for the gospel. So Lewis contrasts this with the Christian way. He says the Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the natural self, all the desires, as well as the ones that you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. It's harder and easier than what we're all trying to do. You've noticed, I expect, that Christ himself sometimes describes the Christian way as very hard, sometimes as very easy. He says, take up your cross. In other words, it is like going to be beaten to death in a concentration camp. Next minute, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He means both. And one can just see why both are true. And here he comes with some great analogies. Teachers will tell you 
that the laziest boy in the class is the one who works hardest in the end. They mean this. If you give two boys, say, a proposition in geometry to do, the one who's prepared to take the trouble will try to understand it. The lazy boy will try to learn it by heart because for the moment that needs less effort. But six months later, when they're preparing for an exam, that lazy boy is doing hours and hours of miserable drudgery over things the other boy understands and positively enjoys in a few minutes. Laziness means more work in the long run. Or look at it this way. In a battle or in mountain climbing, there's often one thing which it takes a lot of pluck to do, but it is also in the long run, the safest thing to do. If you funk it, you will find yourself hours later in far worse danger. The cowardly thing is also the most dangerous thing. It is like that here. The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. And you might notice that there is a strong echo here of that quotation that we use at the end of each class. So what we are trying to do, um, it is far easier than what we're all trying to do instead. For what we're trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves, to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life, and yet at the same time, be good. We are all trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping, in spite of this, to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. As he said, a thistle cannot produce figs. If I am a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I shall still produce grass and no wheat. If I want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. I must be plowed up and re-sown. And this is one of his great quotations here about the daily battle. That is why the real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for that day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back and listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view. I want to turn it down. Make sure that you are muted. That would be a big help. Um, so the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back and listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in, and so on all day, standing back from all your natural fussings and frettings coming in out of the wind. We can only do it for moments at first, but from those moments, uh, that sort of life will be flooding through our system because we are now letting him work at the right part of us. It's the difference between paint, which is laid on the outside, and a dye or stain, which soaks right through. 
Jesus never talked vague, idealistic gas. When he said, be perfect, he meant it. He meant that we must go in for the full treatment. It is hard, but the sort of compromise we're all hankering after is harder. It is, in fact, impossible. And now we get to another one of Lewis's great analogies. It may be hard for an egg to It would be a jolly sight harder to learn to fly while remaining an egg. And this is one of those analogies that when you look at it, it makes you realize that it is absolutely vital that we understand how to avoid doing these things that he's talking about here. So part of what he's saying here is that we have to understand what an egg is for. And he says, it may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder for an egg to learn to fly. We are like eggs at present and you cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary decent egg. We must be hatched or go bad. May I come back to what I said before? This is the whole of Christianity. There is nothing else. It's so easy to get muddled about that. It's easy to think that the church has a lot of different objects, education, building, missions, holding services, just as it is easy to think that the state has a lot of different objects, military, political, economic, and whatnot. But in a way, things are much simpler than that. The state exists simply to promote and to protect the ordinary happiness of human beings in this life. A husband and wife chatting over a fire, a couple of friends having a game of darts in a pub, a man reading a book in his own room or digging in his own garden. That is what the state is for. And unless they are helping to increase and prolong and protect such moments, all the laws, parliaments, armies, courts, police, economics, etc., are simply a waste of time. There's a lot to say about that, but I'm not going to go there. So why the church exists? In the same way, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. It says in the Bible that the whole universe was made for Christ and that everything is to be gathered together in him. I do not suppose any of us can understand how this will happen as regards the whole universe. We do not know what, if anything, lives in the parts of it that are millions of miles away from this earth. Even on this earth, we do not know how it applies to things other than men. After all, that is what you would expect. We've been shown the plan only insofar as it concerns ourselves. What we have been told is how we men and women can be drawn into Christ, can become part of that wonderful present which the young prince of the universe wants to offer to his father, that present which is himself and therefore us in him. It is the only thing we were made for. 
And there are strange, exciting hints in the Bible that when we are drawn in, a great many other things in nature will begin to come right. The bad dream will be over. It will be morning. And this is a great place to give a little plug for the weight of glory. If you've never read that, um, it is uh, focused on these last couple of sentences that he's talking about here. So that brings us to the next chapter. So poor Lewis, every time he did a broadcast, he would get an avalanche of mail. Every letter that he got, he answered for all of his life, tens of thousands of letters. And he got some complaint letters of people that wanted to pick at things. And um, I feel very sorry for him because when you uh, think about being a preacher or a speaker or a teacher, uh, and remember Lewis was limited depending on the talk to 10 or 15 minutes, you just can't cover everything. I have an hour every week here and I can barely get through it. But when you have to sacrifice uh, for time, sometimes you can't make things clear as you would like and you can't give every exception and every proviso. And so Lewis would get letters from people wanting him to have done just that. So this time he says, I find a good many people have been upset about what he said in the last chapter about our Lord's words, be ye perfect. Some people seem to think this means unless you are perfect, I will not, and this, that is another word that disappears behind the Zoom flag. Um, as we cannot be perfect, if he meant that, our position is hopeless. So I don't think Jesus did mean that. I think he meant the only help I will give is help to become perfect. You may want something less, but I will give you nothing less. And then he has this great analogy about going to the dentist. And if you are one of those people who hates going to the dentist, let me just apologize in advance if this triggers you. So Lewis says, when I was a child, I often had toothache. And I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least not till the pain became very bad. And the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists, I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth, which had not yet begun to ache. They would not let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they took a mile. Now, if I put it that way, our Lord is like the dentists. If you give him an inch, he will take a mile. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of some one particular sin, which they are ashamed of, like physical cowardice, or which obviously is spoiling daily life, like bad temper or drunkenness. But he will cure it all right, but he will not stop there. That may be all you asked, but if once you call him in, he will give you the full treatment. That is why he warned people to count the cost before becoming Christians. Make no mistake, he says, if you let me, 
I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that is what you are in for. Nothing less or other than that. You have free will. And if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I'm going to see this job through. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you after death, whatever it cost me, I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect, until my father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you, as he said he was well pleased with me. This I can do and will do, but I will not do anything less. And yet, this is the other and equally important side of it. This helper who will in the long run be satisfied with nothing less than absolute perfection will also be delighted with the first feeble stumbling effort you make tomorrow to do the simplest duty. Another great analogy here from one of Lewis's favorite writers, George MacDonald, the great Scotsman who Lewis said baptized his imagination. As a great Christian writer said, every father is pleased at the baby's first attempt to walk. No father would be satisfied with anything less than a firm, free, manly walk in a grown child. In the same way, he said, God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. The practical upshot is this. On the one hand, God's demand for perfection need not discourage you in the least in your present attempts to be good or even in your present failures. Each time you fall, he will pick you up again. And he knows perfectly well that your own efforts are never going to bring you anywhere near perfection. On the other hand, you must realize from the outset that the goal toward which he's beginning to guide you is absolute perfection. And no power in the whole universe, except you yourself, can prevent him from taking you to that goal. That is what you are in for. If we do not realize that, then we are very likely to start pulling back and resisting him after a certain point. And this is that whole idea that it is an effort on both parts, on our part and on God's part, that we are to try knowing that on our own, we are doomed to failure, but also trusting Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit, the transforming presence that comes into our lives uh, where we know Jesus's life has been planted in our hearts and that begins to make that Zoe life spread through us. Lewis then goes on to another really important point that I think is so applicable today. I think that many of us, when Christ has enabled us to overcome one or two sins that were an obvious nuisance, are inclined to feel, though we do not put it out into words, that we are now good enough. He has done all we wanted him to do, and we should be obliged if he would now leave us alone. As we say, I never expected to be a saint. I only wanted to be a decent, ordinary chap. And we imagine when we say this, that we are being humble. But this is the fatal mistake. Of course, we never wanted and never asked 
to be made into the sort of creatures he's going to make us into. But the question is not what we intended ourselves to be, but what he intended us to be when he made us. He is the inventor, we are only the machine. He is the painter, we are only the picture. He is the potter, we are the clay. How should we know what he means us to be like? How shall we know what he means us to be like? This is that whole idea that we are made in the image of God, which is beyond our comprehension. You see, he has already made us something very different from what we were. Long ago, before we were born, when we were inside our mother's bodies, we passed through various stages. We were once rather like vegetables and once rather like fish. It was only at a later stage that we became like what we think of as human babies. And if we had been conscious of those earlier stages, I dare say we should have been quite contented to stay as vegetables or fish, should not have wanted to be made all the way into babies. But all the time, he knew his plan for us and was determined to carry it out. Something the same is now happening at a higher level. We may be content to remain what we call ordinary people, but he is determined to carry out quite a different plan. To shrink back from that plan is not humility, it is laziness and cowardice. To submit to it is not conceit or megalomania, it is obedience. Here's another way of putting the two sides of the truth. On the one hand, we must never imagine that our own unaided efforts can be relied upon to carry us even through the next 24 hours as decent people. And that, my friends, is the sin of the Pharisees, that they believed that they had achieved it, that they could achieve righteousness, and they could sort of sit back and relax and enjoy it. But as Lewis says, if God does not support us, not one of us is safe from some gross sin. On the other hand, no possible degree of holiness or heroism, which has ever been recorded of the greatest saints is what he has determined to produce in every one of us in the end. The job will not be completed in this life, but he means to get us as far as possible before death. That is why we must not be surprised if we are in for a rough time. When a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well, and the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected, he often feels that it would now be natural if things went fairly smoothly. When troubles come along, illnesses, money troubles, new kinds of temptation, he is disappointed. These things, he feels, might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent in his bad old days, but why now? Because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level, putting him into situations where he will have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he ever dreamed of being before. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. And I wanna just do a little book plug here um, for the Screwtape Letters, for those of you that have not read it. Um, it is a great book 
that gets at this whole idea of how Satan wants us to become self-satisfied, to think that we're pretty nice people. And even if we're not pretty nice, we're certainly better than those people next door or those people that cut us off on the downtown connector, um, that we are virtuous. We are on the side of right and good. And because of that, we can look down on everyone else. And that causes that fatal sin of pride, which Lewis unpacks so beautifully in the Screwtape Letters. So I would encourage you, if you've never read that, to go back. Uh, if you want to do a deep dive, uh, you can look at the class we did on that. Um, so now we get another image from George MacDonald of the living house. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. The command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. He said in the Bible that we were gods and that he's going to make good his words if we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us, filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror, which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, uh, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. And I love the way Lewis unpacks the theological doctrine, Imago Dei here, what it means to be in the image of God, that it's far more than we have ever imagined. And I wanna to commend to you a little pamphlet that um, has been popular uh, really for a long time, decades and decades, uh, that's a little expansion of McDonald's analogy here. And that pamphlet is called My Heart, Christ's Home. And it is uh, by a guy, I believe, named Robert Munker. Um, I'll put the link in the email. But it is a terrific little reflection on what all of this really means. Another place to reflect on this, some of you will remember long ago, in one of our Lewis classes, we studied a poem that's called Mythopoeia that was written by J.R.R. Tolkien for C.S. Lewis about the night when they walked on Addison's Walk at Maudlin College uh, when Lewis was in his late 20s and had the conversation that led to Lewis's conversion. And there's a beautiful part in there um, where Tolkien is reflecting about 
our being made in the image of God. And I've talked about this before, the idea of God is the single beam of beautiful and brilliant golden white light that hits a prism and it refracts into all of these different points of beautiful color that all together are part of that beam of light. And any one of those points um, reflects the image of God, the source of that light, but all of them taken together reflect it in its fullness. And if you wanna reflect on that idea, I commend that poem to you. So some implications from these chapters. First, live into the reality that Christianity is not at its core about being good, but about dying to yourself and receiving new life in Christ. And this is a great short verse um, that I would encourage you to memorize because it is packed with deep theology. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That Jesus wants to give us that new Christ life uh, to turn us into a little Christ, which is so much more than just being good. Not that there's anything wrong with being good, of course, but that that is not the point. The point is to become like Christ, which leads us to the second implication, that following Christ is a daily decision and battle. We have talked before about how, as Christians, we have to choose to follow Christ. And so often, we get the wrong idea about this. We, some of us can point back to a particular day and moment where we gave our hearts to Jesus Christ, and that is a beautiful thing. But that does not mean that after that, you can just sit back and relax and say, I'm saved. I've got fire insurance. I'm not going down. I'm going to go up when that day comes. That is not what it is all about. Jesus calls us to follow him. And I want you to think about what it's like if you need to follow somebody um, in a car to a destination that you've never been to before. And you know if you lose them um, and pretend you have no cell phones, if you lose that person, you're going to be lost. You will never get to the destination. You are so intent on following them and paying attention. And that's what Jesus means, that we are to follow him in that way, that we are to daily decide. And as the scriptures say, Jesus said to all of the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And then be sober, be alert and cautious at all times. That enemy of yours, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And as we talked about in Screwtape class, we are in a battle. And part of what Satan wants us to do is make us think, oh, no, we're not. We're just on a walk in the park. There's no one trying to take us out. But in fact, the devil is trying to take us out. And that is why it is so important that we be focused and choosing daily to follow Christ, which leads to the third thing, keep radically focused on the main thing. The purpose of life is to follow Christ, to become like him, and to draw others to him. As Jesus says in the high priestly prayer, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent.
And as Paul says in that beautiful part of Philippians 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, i.e. from trying to be good, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Which leads to the fourth implication, proactively continue in seeking to grow in discipleship and beware thinking that you have arrived. To some of the Pharisees who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And lastly, rejoice in the hope we have in Christ, that we will be transformed. Listen to this text, which is what the music was at the beginning. Uh, and I would encourage you to listen to that music and reflect on these words later. I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And then this great part from 2 Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction that we experience now in this life is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Which leads us to our closing quotation that I would invite you to say with me. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we confess to you the pride, hypocrisy, and impatience of our lives. 
Lord, we confess to you that we are so prone to fall into Phariseeism and the idea of just trying to be good. But Lord, we pray that you will remind us that we are beggars at the foot of the cross telling other beggars where to find bread. Lord, we pray that you would plant that Zoe Christ life in our hearts, that you would be transforming us day by day, that we would choose daily to follow hard after you, that we might be molded more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.